Take your Bibles and let's return to 2 Samuel. We're in 2 Samuel 19 this morning. 2 Samuel 19. Grateful for Jonathan's prayer for members in our body. And I would encourage you to find ways to be paying attention to what's happening in the lives of our members um, we have several that are going through challenges, and I think especially of, of Melanie, these have been surprising challenges for her, and uh, she needs our encouragement and the comfort that God's people can bring to her. We'll be looking at verses 8, the, second, the last part rather, of verse 8 through verse 43 in just a few moments. Have you ever been betrayed by a friend? Deeply wounded by someone that you thought had your back, that was supposed to be an encouragement or support to you. When someone close, someone that should be supporting you, hurts you, how do you respond? That's a challenging question, isn't it? I don't think it takes a lot for us to think maybe even of a time or a person where we've been hurt or we feel betrayed. And perhaps a situation has come to your mind, even as I've raised these questions. Instances like these are some of the hardest to bear. How are we to move forward? This is part of life. We all go through struggles like this, relationship challenges. How do we move forward? How do we handle future interactions? How do we respond correctly? Several years ago, the story of Louis Zamperini was made popular by the best-selling book titled Unbroken. Later, a movie of the same name was made. In his story, once he'd come to Christ, Louis believed that the best way to live his life was to try and do the right thing. He had given his heart to Christ and said, I want to follow you in every way I can. But what if doing the right thing meant doing something that he could not tolerate? What if it meant going back to Japan, where he, as a prisoner of war, was held? What if it meant going back to see the people who tormented and humiliated him day after day after day? What if it meant talking with those guards who'd beaten and starved him? What if it meant forgiving them? One night, someone suggested to him that not enough people were going to Japan. If reconciliation was happening in Europe, then shouldn't it also happen in Japan? In that moment, Louis remembered an interview he'd once given to Time magazine. He could recite verbatim his quote from that story. He, he had said, I'd rather be dead than return to that country. Why would he ever want to go back to the place where he had been forced to bear such unspeakable things. And yet, in spite of his initial resistance, he became, became convinced that he had to return. So in October of 1950, he arrived in Tokyo. After touring a few cities, he sought permission to visit the prison where he had been held. And at that time, many of his former guards were serving prison sentences there themselves. If he were serious about forgiving people, he would know it by what would happen when he visited that prison where all of Japan's convicted war criminals were living in one place. 
On the day assigned, he met those former guards, and by God's grace, he forgave them, even the cruelest among them. This helps illustrate for us, again, as we know, broken relationships are very hard to heal. Letting go of deep wounds and hurts, again, are some of the most difficult challenges in our lives. Reconciliation, restoration require humility, forgiveness, even time. But even more than any of those things, they require the grace of God. This is not natural to us. This isn't what we seek on our own. We run from situations like that, don't we? But now, while it's difficult to heal a relationship, imagine how difficult it would have been for Israel now in our context to be restored, to be made whole again after the civil war they had faced under the rebellion of Absalom. We're told at least in one place more than 20,000 men had died in this conflict. Brother fighting against brother. Consider the wisdom and care then that David would need to exercise if Israel was to be united again. What we see in our text this morning is that God's king mercifully restores even those who've turned against him. Now the death of Absalom is a defining moment for Israel as it instantly shakes up the political structure in Israel again. We could expect that things are going to return to normal when we hear that Absalom is dead. But reuniting the nation will not be this easy, simple task. And David is careful. He doesn't rush right to Jerusalem. We see him in this chapter taking his time, being cautious, being wise, being gracious. So as we begin to read our text this morning, we're not surprised to find the tribes of Israel in disarray and in confusion. Let's begin our reading at the very end of chapter, or of verse 8 of chapter 19, and we'll read through verse 15. This is the word of our God to us, his people. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, the king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he's fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, who we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are bone. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? This was a cousin of David. God do so to me and more also if you are not the commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he, David, swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Let's ask for God's help as we consider this text together this morning. Father, we come before you confessing our need, even as we've begun to think of this idea of reconciliation 
we admit that this is challenging for us. This is hard for us. Lord, in most cases for us, it's, it's far beyond us. We need your grace. And yet we know in your word, you are able to change us, to make us new. Your word has called us to life. So cause us to live again. Challenge and convict us in those areas where we are straying from you. Comfort us where we need the encouragement of your spirit. Do the work in our lives that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we'll consider in our text, we'll focus on four different responses to the return of the king. As we do, we'll want to consider carefully David's responses to each of these parties. We'll see them come to him or their interaction with him, and then we'll think about how David is responding to them. Now, as we do, consider how we're supposed to see God's kindnesses to us through David. I think as we've worked through this series, it won't surprise you to hear me tell you to consider how David points us to Jesus. This is to be like the lenses of glasses that we put on and see Jesus doing even greater things than David does. This is a foreshadowing of our God's kindness to us in his own Son, Jesus Christ. So first, we see the confusing contention of of rebellion. In verse 9, as we move into this section, we find the people of Israel arguing and debating. They're questioning, what should be done now? Not everybody's in agreement. Choosing to follow Absalom, they now realize was going to be costly. How do we bring David back? We've chased after his own son, who in rebellion stood against the king. And yet they'd reasoned that David had been a good king. He'd protected and defended the nation. And what other choice did they have? They would bring him back. Then we see in verses 11 through 13, David seeks to persuade his own tribe to be an active part of this national reconciliation. So what we have here at the beginning of the text is this dividing of groups, right? We have all of Israel and those tribes. And then we have Judah. And they're both wrestling through the same question. David pursues his own tribe, Judah. He works through the faithful priests who've remained in Jerusalem. He calls the men of Judah brothers. He reminds them that they're his family. You're you're my flesh. You're of my bone. Now it's vitally important for David to convince Judah that he should respond. So just think again of the context Why is Judah the one that David is specifically pursuing? Well, it was in Hebron, the heart of Judah, where Absalom's rebellion had begun. The rebellion of his own son, among his own tribe. Remember, David had reigned over this one tribe for several years before he'd been made king over a united Israel. David had to convince them to reconcile his kingship if the nation was to be healed. Now he also takes this unusual step of appointing Absalom's general as the replacement for Joab. And this raises all kinds of questions in our mind. Why is he doing this? We can only speculate because the text doesn't answer that specifically. It could be that David is punishing Joab. For disregarding his instruction concerning the preservation of Absalom's life. 
We've seen over and over again Joab acting outside of the king's will. Though he's zealous for David in many cases, very often he does what he wants. Or this could simply be a shrewd move to demonstrate that David is willing to move forward, to put the rebellion behind him, to use Absalom's general as his own general. Again, Amasa is his cousin. So the fact that he had willingly served Absalom and even gave orders that would have caused the death of his countrymen demonstrate David's gracious forgiveness. Perhaps this is the step that convinces Judah to pursue reconciliation. Again, we don't know David's motivations here, and that's not the point. The point is found in verse 14. Where we're told he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man so that they called him to return. And they reinstate him as king. What I want us to focus on for just a minute in David's response is David's initiative to be restored to his own tribe. And this isn't ultimately the political movements of a wise and shrewd king. The greater point is that God is still actively accomplishing his will in Israel through David, the scorned king, the rejected king, but now the forgiving king. God is keeping his promises to David. In spite of all the political maneuvering, the backstabbing, the betrayal, the scheming, God is the one who raises up kings and sets them down. And he's doing All of his will, again, in spite of the free choices of sinful men. We're to rest in this same sovereign good purposes of our true king. We're to consider his rule in the lives of our leaders as well. That's why we pray for our leaders each and every week. That's why we should be praying for them throughout the week. We don't live as if men who have power in our world, are doing only what they want to do. We trust in the God who rules over all men. Now, I want you to jump down to verse 40, the end of this chapter, and we'll read what happens here at the end. We'll come back to verse 16 in just a moment. Look at verse 40. The king went on to Gilgal, and Chimham went on with him. All the people of Judah... So there's this one tribe, and also half the people of Israel, the rest of the tribes, brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to him, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Have we taken advantage Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have ten shares in the king. We have ten tribes. And in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer or more convincing than the words of the men of Israel. What we find here at the beginning and the end, the book ends of this chapter, of this section, is that there's uh, no resolution. There's still conflict for the nation. There's an ominous dissonance resonating at the end of the score that we'll see producing further national unrest next week. We're not done with the conflict. 
The tribes of Israel and Judah are childishly excuse me, bickering over who gets to sit in the front seat as David returns to his throne. So again, we see our text bookended with confusion and mistrust and discord among the people of God. It's clear who the leader is supposed to be. This isn't a question. So why the confusion and fighting? What we see in this is that a lack of faithfulness to God's revealed will always creates confusion among the people of God. They had rebelled against God's chosen king. They chased after a pragmatic solution to their problems. Someone shockingly told them that their human ruler David was a sinful person who did not rule perfectly. And therefore if you put up the pretty boy Absalom maybe he'll take care of you better. And they bought it. They refused to follow God's leader when they thought another could give them what they wanted. They chased a pragmatic solution to their problems. And remember, Israel does this again and again, don't they? Doesn't this remind you of how they chased after Saul? They say, we want a king like the other nations. And they choose Saul because he's tall. That'll make a good king. And they choose Absalom because he's good looking and has great hair. Good choice, right? They walked by sight rather than by faith. On the scene walks a tall, good-looking leader type, talking a good game, and they go wandering off after him. We, we find the humor in how silly this is, but aren't we just like that? Aren't we just like that? We walk by sight rather than by faith. We want Christianity to work like a spiritual vending machine. We're willing to put in the coins of church attendance, a few service projects, a desperate prayer here or there, and we expect to receive from God a steady job, good kids, a growing bank account, security, prosperity, success. And we get upset when it doesn't work that way. But that's not how God works. This view, this pragmatism sees God as someone to be used instead of someone to be served. This view makes demands of God. It tells him what to do rather than trusts him. But our God works in his way and in his time and often through hardship to test us and strengthen us and make us dependent on him. He requires us to invest faithfully in a developing relationship of trust. Our attempts to control the outcome of our life, our demand for ease and comfort, will always lead to this kind of failure and confusion and division. So ask yourself this morning, what pragmatic resources am I leaning on that are ultimately a rejection of God's plan and provision? Commentator Roger Ellsworth notes of us, the truth is that we all from time to time become infatuated with some Absalom and recklessly pursue it without regard of God's will, even as Israel of old did. But here's the turning point. But God did not wash his hands of us. He would be justified in doing so, but he patiently bears 
with us, forgives us, and restores us to fellowship with him. Do you know God in this way? Is he your savior? Unbeliever, you can come to him for mercy, turn from your sin, and receive his grace in salvation. But you must also be ready to follow this king. We're also presented with another lesson in these chapters, this lesson from Israel's rebellion. Rejecting God's provision will also lead to confusion and disunity among the people of God. When we decide this is the priority, I will go my way, we shouldn't be surprised when there's confusion and disunity. When we're fixated on our way, we lose sight of the big picture. We lose sight of our mission. Paul warns in Galatians 5.15, if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Don't be surprised that in the family of God, there's pain as people attack each other. Because if you're consumed with your own desires, you're going to fight with other people. He commands us instead to serve one another through love. We shouldn't be surprised when there's disunity. It's easy for a church body to allow discontentment and a critical spirit to arise among us. But Subaru Road, church family, let us keep our eyes on the mission of our king. Let us keep our eyes on our master. Let us keep these priorities ever at the forefront of our minds. In just a few moments, we will rehearse together again our covenant promises based on Ephesians 4. We will recite, and I want this to ring in your ears a few moments after we come to this table. Where we will say we will work. That means it's not easy. We will pray for the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. We will walk together in Christian love. Bear the burdens of one another. We cause each other burdens. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other. And as occasion may require, faithfully admonish and entreat one another. Are we taking those membership obligations seriously? We're making promises. Are you eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace? One author and pastor applies this to our modern church life. He writes, how often on any given week, I used to marvel that a congregation, any congregation, ever survived between petty bickering and flagrant sins between hurt feelings and asinine stubbornness, between trivial priorities and tragic apathies. Yet it seemed that the fragmenting tendencies of human folly were always overcome by the glue of divine grace. Surely Jesus is building his church or it would have vanished long ago. And just as surely as the kingdom of Israel is the Lord's, or it would have been swept away in the sewage line of history before David's greater son ever appeared in the flesh. This tells us we all must cast ourselves on the mercy and grace of our God to keep us, to help us to pursue the type of unity he desires. This pastor is not seeking to put the church down, church culture down, but he admits the reality that the church is a hospital for the sick. We're not here because we're good people who have everything figured out. 
We're not here because we have the best community you can find in human existence. We're here because we have a common Savior and King. And He provides our strength and our unity and our forward progress. Now, shouldn't David's initiative for reconciliation here remind us of how God pursues us through his spirit? Notice David reaches out to Judah. David moves them off of their spot. He calls them to reconciliation. Why? Why? David knew of God's mercy and forgiveness. As one who is unworthy of it, remember how God had pursued him. Remember how God initiated the relationship again to be restored through Nathan. Now David takes the initiative in reconciliation. One commentator points out David's appeal is an act of wonderful clemency. It was such a contrast to the usual treatment of rebels. But this king was not like other kings. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Think of it. How would a normal human king who'd been scorned like this, rejected, pushed out of his kingdom, out of his capital city, run for his life, how do you think he would normally return? Not with grace like this. Secondly, we'll consider a pragmatic plea for mercy. Look down at verse 16. God's word tells us again, and Shimei, the son of Girah, the Benjamite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. Remember, that's the tribe of Saul. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? This is a fair question. He should have been put to death. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, Hear these words carefully. You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. So secondly, we see a pragmatic plea for mercy. These verses, Shimei reappears on the scene. This is the man who sought to kick David while he's down. Remember how he heaps scorn on him as he leaves Jerusalem. He's literally throwing stones at him and his men as he hurls these insults. He's accusing him falsely of being responsible of all the calamity that's facing Israel. This is falling back on him because he had wrongly dealt with Saul. But now, and I would add conveniently, he admits that he did wrong on that day. He even confesses it as sin. Now, maybe you're not convinced that he's not genuine. 
But I'm not, I'm not sure I buy the genuineness of his confession here for several reasons. See if these are convincing to you. The narrator includes, he tells us of his haste. It says he hurried down. He made a big case, I'm the first one to meet you. If this is about genuine repentance, what does that actually matter? It seems unnecessary unless he's just very interested in avoiding the king's retribution. Ziba, who also appears to be this duplicitous and pragmatic character, rushes along with him as well. Why does the narrator include that detail and give Ziba no words to say? Finally, this is a strange thing. He brings with him a thousand men from the tribe of Saul. Why does he need those men if this is about restoration and forgiveness? His confession doesn't seem to be completely genuine. Now, now we're not told, and again, that's not the main point that the narrator is holding out for us. I think he's trying to show us how David responds. But one author concurs about this conclusion that Shimei's repentance isn't genuine. He says there's no reason to hold that Shimei had undergone any massive change of heart. He'd committed a tactical error called treason. And now he is to save his skin if he can. He does not submit to David out of love, but out of policy. He recognizes the realities of power and of politics and adapts himself accordingly. But these details only further highlight the grace of God's king. Do you see the undeserved mercy of David that he shows here? He says to a man who according to the law deserves execution, you shall not die and he gives him an oath beyond that doesn't this remind you of our christ who also presents us with a promise of his mercy he says to his people in hebrews 8 i will be their god and they shall be my people for i will be merciful toward their iniquities and i will remember their sins no more our sins they are many His mercy is more. Now understand, this doesn't mean that justice is unimportant. It isn't as if David, God's king, is just saying, well, no matter, it's okay. We'll just wipe that away. He will tell his son Solomon to deal with this man later. But remember what God commands every believer in Romans 12. Listen carefully. He says, beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, God says, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That doesn't mean you don't have any recourse. What it does mean is within your own heart, you cannot harbor feelings of bitterness and vengeance. Recall Jesus' story of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. When the man who had been forgiven an unpayable debt, a lifetime of debt, he throws a man who owes him a smaller debt into prison. The master then calls him back and confronts him. And he says, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant? And here's the real key piece that's supposed to be the mic drop moment for us. Here's what he says. As I had mercy on you. 
Do you see the point? The way to reconciliation then is two-pronged. You must, you must start by understanding just how great your debt is against your king, against God himself. And then you can leave the matter of justice to him. When you recognize you have offended the sovereign king of the universe who has never done you anything but good, how can you hold an offense against a fellow sinner? That's the point of that parable. You must leave justice in the hands of God. Romans 12, it tells us he claims justice for himself. He alone is wise enough and powerful enough to work it out in his time. He promises to execute retribution in his time and in his way. You can trust that God won't let wrong go unpunished. He never does. But only he can see the end from the beginning. And when we meditate on the character of the God who says vengeance is mine, that's liberating, isn't it? I can stop being consumed with trying to make everything right the way I want it to work out. I can trust an all-wise, all-powerful God to act righteously in every circumstance. This truth compels us to turn to him again. For those who beg for mercy from the Lord Jesus will find kindness even greater than was shown to Shimei here. Number three, we see a clarifying claim of loyalty in verses 24 through verse 30. Let's read again. In verse 24, Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. And he's referring to Ziba. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. David next meets Mephibosheth, this son of Jonathan. We're told that his appearance is appalling in verse 24. He had not cared for himself physically at all. And this was meant to be a sign of his grief at what is happening in the kingdom and a sign of his loyalty, his solidarity with David. The king asks him, why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And I want you to hear in this the humanness, the emotion. David had done such good for this man. And he's saying, why didn't you go with me? I don't understand. I hear a hint in this of the hurt David must have felt being convinced that Mephibosheth had been plotting against him. 
But then we hear his answer and his explanation is very reasonable. And I believe the narrator is pointing us. He's intending for us to believe him. He included verse 24 when that's not essential to the conversation. He's pointing at at who is right here. The narrator is pointing to the truth by supporting his explanation. He's saying, I am loyal. He also does not respond as a man who's interested in his own prosperity. He gives himself completely into the hands of the king. He recalls David's incredible kindness of including him in his own family, bringing him into his own home to eat at his table. He calls David, my lord, the king, five times. This is a humble and submissive response. He freely submits to his judgment, even when David divides what he had previously given to him alone. Now, doesn't it seem then that David acts in a less gracious manner toward Mephibosheth? Should he have restored all the property that he had given to Ziba on his way out of Jerusalem? What's the right answer here? Well, you may not be convinced as I am that Mephibosheth is in the right. We're not exactly sure what the right response should be. Who is right? We're not sure. It's possible that David doesn't yet know who he's to trust. But he at least gives back some of the property. And some commentators even believe that David may be setting up a test as to who is truly loyal to following David in this. This may be where Solomon gets the idea. When two women come to him and both claim an infant to be their own, he suggests divide the baby. And it's a test. The true mother will reveal herself by seeking to spare the child's life. And here, Mephibosheth reveals his true loyalty by willingly relinquishing any claim on the land, on the property. He's satisfied with the return of the king. This account reminds me of a convicting quote from John Piper. He states, what is the deepest root of your joy? What God gives to you? Or who God is to you? That's an important question, isn't it? God graciously guides us into a greater realization that our ultimate need is for more of his word, more of his ways, more of him. Do you have a relationship with God because of what you get out of it? Have you confused the results of a walk with God with the purpose Mephibosheth models for us the priorities we're to have toward our king. I'm happy that you're returning, that God's will is being done in your life. Paul echoes this passion in Philippians 3. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How does someone come to think and feel this way? They've learned. They've come to know Christ as supremely valuable. And when comparing him to the pleasures of this life, there's no comparison. There's no comparison. Do you want to know him more than you want what he can give to you? Are you living your life as if this moment is more significant than eternity? 
that temporal achievement or success or security is more satisfying than a relationship with him. What is missing in our understanding of God if we believe temporary, earthly ease is better than deep fellowship with our God and Savior? He wants you to have more. More of him. We've considered the confusing contention of rebellion, a pragmatic plea for mercy, and a clarifying claim of loyalty. Finally and lastly, we'll look at the contented gratitude of faithful service. Look down now at verse 31. Now Barzilla the Giladite had come down from Rogalim and went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzilla was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzilla, Come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzilla said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. This is probably his son. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall come over, shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. We see the contented gratitude of faithful service. This final person, the narrator tells us that David interacts with is a wealthy or an elderly man named Barzilla. There are several men who had helped David along the way. We see a list of those as David had fled. But the narrator focuses on this man. He had much in this life and yet he generously Provided for God's king. Even when that was risky. Even when that would have been costly to him. Even when it went against popular sentiment. David offers to give him even more. And when this gracious man refuses. We see his contentment revealed. Think about what David is offering him. You come with me to Jerusalem. You can end your days in honor. And in the protection of the king. Here's a man who's not primarily interested in what he can get, but in what he can give. He's not looking for greater honor, greater riches from the king. He's satisfied with faithful service to God's king. And he desires to return home to live out the rest of his days. Now, while Barzilla shows David kindness, God's king shows even greater generosity. He says, come over with me and I will provide for you. God's king offers a home. And even more, he offers his presence. I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. After declining David's offer, Barzilla offers his own son, his servant, Kimham. And he says, let him go over with the the king. You do for him whatever seems good to you. And David responds, I'll do that. I'll do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. 
The lesson we see in this is that God's king delights in us far more than we delight in him. God is far more committed to this relationship with us than we're committed to him. And doesn't that delight us and draw us to him again? Can you see the beauty of David's greater son through the kindness and generosity of David? Christ loves sinners and is eager to show them his grace and mercy. He's eager to reward the service of his faithful servants. This text then compels us to turn again to the God who mercifully restores his undeserving people. And we come back to that question we began with. How does David find the grace to forgive those who've betrayed him, who have hurt him, who deserve condemnation and retribution? How does he move back to Jerusalem and to his throne with reconciliation grace on his heart instead of bitterness and revenge? By God's grace, he's reflecting and he's pointing forward to the goodness and mercy of our God. He knows what he has been forgiven. He committed treason against God without any provocation. Therefore, he can freely let go of his people's offense and show mercy to those who do not deserve that restoration. Do you hear the key? He's focusing on what God has done for him in his kindness. And therefore, out of that abundance, he's able to offer reconciliation. What hope is there for you to reconcile with an estranged family member or friend or fellow church member? Please don't hear this as oversimplifying. This may take time, years even. But you can be free of that bitterness and hurt and hard feelings as you remember what you've been forgiven. What hope is there for you? Start by reminding yourself again and again of just how merciful God has been to pursue you in your sinfulness and rebellion. How many times has he come after you when you've turned away from him? How many times has he spent, sent his spirit of conviction to call you back one more time? Dwell on these truths every time your heart and mind wants to rehearse how you've been offended. The gospel liberates you to be a forgiving person. But you must dwell on it. And then, and only then, move forward in that same grace with wisdom. Now, just as we've seen here, not every situation is the same. We've seen three different responses, really four. So we have to ask God for wisdom and how to interact with that person in the future. We're not oversimplifying this. We're being called to choose to meditate on God's grace rather than continually litigating that offense David is not holding on to what his own tribe, his own countrymen, his own family has done to him. He's moving forward for the good of all involved. He's been liberated from that bitterness and retribution. Only God can give you the grace to do the same. Will you be held captive by the offenses that you have borne from other sinners? Turn again to the God who mercifully restores undeserving people and move forward in his grace. We began just before this sermon, we prayed in song that God's spirit would show us 
Christ. That's our answer again, isn't it? Have you seen him? Do you see him? Gaze upon his beauty and marvel at his grace to you, his undeserving subject. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we rejoice again in our Christ who freely forgives sinners, who restores rebels, who initiates restoration and reconciliation with those who are not yet pursuing him. We've seen it be true in David's life and now we're seeing it be true through David. God, we are grateful that you are faithful that you delight in steadfast love. You delight to show us kindness. You are far more ready to forgive than we're ready to ask for it. So may your grace lead us to repentance again. May it call us to turn away from our own trivial pursuits of this life and follow a king worthy of all of our loyalty worthy of our faithful service. God, we love you, and yet we recognize we need to love you more. May the gospel compel us to obey you, to serve you, to live for you, even to die for you. May Christ be honored in and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.